The Science Inside Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Science Inside. My name is Alna Schutz. And I'm Lebo Khang Madisha. So, Lebo, I don't know if you know this because I don't think just any normal Joe on the street is aware of how many dinosaur fossils have been found in South Africa and how rich of a history we have. Actually, that is so true, Alna, because like recently there have been all these dinosaur discoveries that have been happening and they're just coming around like I don't know it's it's a trend that they've started these paleontologists <laughs> and archaeologists discovering dinosaurs and if you think about it most of us know about the cradle of humankind we know about like Mrs. Plett home and a lady but it took me a while to realize that, of course, if there's a dinosaur fossil to be found or, um, uh, you know, a species that related to humans even, there's not going to be one of them. Exactly. Or exactly. ten of them. There's actually going to be lots in Everywhere. the whole country. Exactly. Yeah, so, so South Africa, if you didn't know, we have a really rich history of paleontology or rather of fossils. And that means we have some very dedicated cool scientists working on this kind of stuff indeed indeed and some of them are based right here at the Wits university and Wits has been involved in a lot this week i don't know if you remember that recently they were part of discovering a new species of a giant dinosaur in the free state province and it was the largest land animal alive on earth when it lived nearly 200 million years ago so usually these dinosaurs have these like really long, complicated, like Latin scientific names, right? So what did they call this one? Surprisingly, it was a very nice name that they chose. I like the fact that it was a Sutu name as well, keeping it, you know, relevant to where we are. Nice and local. Exactly. It was called Lidumaha di Mahube, which means a giant thunderclap at dawn. That's just a cool name, like, for anybody. Exactly. And it makes me think of, like, a really big thing. Because a thunderclap at dawn, like, every big, every step is just shaking, I don't know, the skies, I guess. But the ground, in this case, because it's a dinosaur on land. Okay, but then it can't have been, like, a small nyana dinosaur if it has a name like that right definitely definitely they chose this name because this dinosaur has a very robust stature which is similar to the sapiens uh, even though they've evolved separately this one in particular has kind of a elephant posture to it okay but no trunk no trunk. No, no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so that's just one example of, um, you know, a, a recent discovery. We're not talking about like the 1980s here. We're talking the last few weeks and months. Constantly scientists are telling us new things about the creatures that lived long ago, not just somewhere on Earth, but our patch of Earth in South Africa right here. And so today we are digging into another exciting recent discovery in today's main story. We're talking about the first or a very big dinosaur grave or graveyard recently unearthed in the Eastern Cape. But in Unscience today we find out about how you get girls, particularly if you're a male bird. <laughs> I was just about to say, um, this is not a dating show. No, no, no. Is it the, the sci <laughs> science of Tinder? Uh, that would be pretty cool, though. <laughs> the science of Tinder. People would get perfect matches all the time. Uh, maybe we should do a story on that in, in the future. We should, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so this time it's about birds, you were saying. That's our unscience feature. In the middle of the show, we take a few minutes out to look at just some ridiculous research. 
I'm guessing the birds aren't using Tinder, but we'll find out more later. <laughs> it would be nice if birds use Tinder. I mean, think about it. Except they'd be distracted. Maybe they wouldn't. They wouldn't be able to fly properly. They'd bump into each other. They're like, oh, I'm swiping left, swiping right. I don't like you. I like you. Oh, it would be a tail feathers. I just couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so later in the show, um, after that, we find out, uh, going back to the paleontology side of things, we find out how modern science relates to the stories and experiences of people living in South Africa long ago and how, you know, scientists from Vitz were definitely not the first people to find those those dinosaur bones and it's very interesting um, how the stories and the mythology of, of our area relates to dinosaurs there's a little bit of monsters and creatures in that one I'm looking forward to it it's all on the show but as always we'll kick it off with some science news in a minute and don't forget you can always find us on our social media on Facebook as VIFM and you can also tweet us at VIFM using the hashtag hashtag science inside if you're a regular listener now you'll know that this is not the only place you can find us. Of course, we are on Vow FM every Monday night, 6 to 7. But if that's not your jam, if you're maybe busy in this exact time, that's not a problem because we have a podcast, which you can find on iTunes as The Science Inside or vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. And for all of you guys steady streaming with us right now, you can catch us on our WhatsApp line at 084-078-4912. But before we get into dinosaurs, mythology, monsters and birds, let's look at some news from the world of science. This week's Science Headline. So every single week we share one story each with each other, just somewhere from the world, far away or close. And Lebo, I've seen a lot in the headlines about what you have for us today. It's really pretty amazing and big news. Yes, the story in particular actually... I, had a, I have a little bit of a soft spot for this one because it's a story of a loving mother literally just caring for their child. But it's a very unique story in that it's also taking very a very risky approach and breaking the boundaries of science. So it's about the first HIV transplant in the world. Ooh. How amazing is that? So an organ transplant... Yes. From somebody who has who's HIV, HIV positive. positive and alive. Okay. Okay. Yes. Tell us more. So, firstly, the story is from Times Live and Beggy Sisa Center of Health Journalism. Recently, reports on an HIV-positive mother donating her liver to her child have marked the first HIV transplant and, un- and uncovered a whole new pool of possible organ donors. The transplant was performed by doctors from Vitz University in order to save an HIV-negative 13-month-old baby who was born with end-stage liver failure. That already is a very, very tough situation this child oh, is so young sure wow and now the possible risk of the child actually contracting hiv actually still remains oh, of course mm. yes i mean it's it's a really risky situation obviously like you said exactly and i'm sure the mother has been taking her medicine to prevent the child from contracting before birth now it's a thing of after birth you could possibly contract this 
But Dr. Jean Boerta, Principal Investigator and Transplant Surgeon and Professor of Surgery in the Department of Surgery in the School of Me- Clinical Medicine in the Faculty of Health Science at Fitz University had this to say that even if the child develops HIV afterwards, we've given the child an opportunity to live a normal life. See, that's, that's true because at least the child is alive that's first and foremost you know this this organ transplant has has saved this child's life and that's in one sense already so amazing exactly and i'm sure the 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 family and the doctors will deal with any other consequences afterwards it's i'm sure the fam- child's family is is so happy but how exactly did they figure out the baby's hiv status so the child has been pre-exposed to prophylactics to try and prevent the HIV virus from spreading, uh, from getting to them. Sure. And this might have prevented them from contracting the virus, but this is only time's tale to tell. So we'll find out as the child grows whether they've actually contracted this virus. Weeks after the transplant was conducted, conducted, excuse me, doctors did think that the child was HIV positive, according to Dr. Buerta. But the transplant team then was able to use a specialized testing HIV test by the National Institute of Communable Diseases, or the NICD, and they could not find any active HIV infection in the bloodstream of the child. Now, this means that the child might have not been HIV positive. So it's either or right now. They're not actually sure. Okay, because there's probably still a lot to happen in this process. Mm. But this case, as amazing as it is, we have said it's high risk. What what does it show us or what do we know now about the riskiness of these kind of cases, specifically around you know, an HIV transplant. Indeed, it is a a risk. And I must mention that this kind of transplant is only granted under extreme circumstances. So as we understand, this very small baby needs to live. Mm. So what else can they do? Just give this child the liver that is available and matches them. Now, a donor's organ usually returns to its normal cell count a few months after the transplant. And keeping in mind that there've never actually been any living HIV positive donors before. So this has only been observed in HIV negative donors. Right. And organs from deceased donors who are HIV positive are normally what are given to other HIV positive recipients. So here we're crossing boundaries and we're crossing the life the life part of it as well okay right so from deceased to living but now it's both living and crossing the the virus and not infected by the virus boundaries okay so now for the recipients in the case in in this case in in particular the child that is even though there's no evidence of hiv in this child's blood there's a possibility of the virus being dormant because the child has been on antiretrovirus uh, virals, excuse me, since the transplant began, and after that, and this might just this might have just suppressed the actual virus in the child. So that's why they haven't been able to detect it. Or it could have gotten rid of it completely. Oh, so we don't know yet. It could mm. it could still go either way. I guess one question that comes up for me is. This is such a big risk on all sides to take. 
why exactly did this mom take this risk or the whole team? I mean, there must have been other options. Right. I mean, one can only imagine that. But this 13-month-year-old baby was actually on the waiting list for a liver transplant for 180 days. Sure, okay. And that's a long time for a young infant still developing. Mm -hmm. And with a defected liver resulting in blood not flowing in and out of it, the liver is slowly reaching its point of shutdown, and this would lead to the baby losing their life. Okay. Exactly. Very serious. So this mother did what any parent would do, honestly, which is save their child's life by any means necessary. And I think it's safe to say that she's the real hero in the story in that she saved her child's life and she just unlocked a whole new pool of donors, basically unlocking a whole breakthrough in the world of science. Hmm. And you know what? Even though obviously we are hoping that the baby remains to seem um, HIV negative, I think... I'm sure that researchers will learn so much about this regardless of what happens next. Definitely. About this process, about how the virus works in, and even just organ transplants in general. So um, either way, I think it's a surgery that's going to be phenomenal and it's always great when these things happen at home. Mm, definitely. So Alna, what do you have for us today? Um, something slightly less heavy but very useful for some people from the world of tech level be honest with me how many hours a day do you think you spend looking at screens too much <laughs> <laughs> too much hours yes just too many hours too much hours yeah it's yeah. crazy right because um if i think about it at work i'm looking at our uh, at screens probably seven to eight hours a day then oh, yes. there's then maybe i watch a movie then i'm on my phone all of those things are different <laughs> But that's all screen time. Exactly. I know I sound like my own mother now or somebody's mother to be like, don't watch too much TV. I mean, when you say screen, like when you say how much time do you spend looking at a screen, I'm thinking my phone alone, right? Now that you say TV, work, I'm like, yo, that's a lot of time that I spend looking at a screen, right? Any screen. And um, just to mention one figure from the New York Times earlier this year, they found that the average American spends about 11 hours a day looking at screens. Excuse me. And then you're sleeping eight hours, I'm assuming. There's not a lot of time. <laughs> what are you doing? In your, like... I don't understand. What do, what do you do in your life? 11 exactly. hours looking at a screen... Eight sleeping, hopefully eight sleeping. Maybe you cut down on sleep. That's what's happening in today's yeah. world anyway. So here's an interesting thought, though. We've been talking about TVs and, and phones, which is obviously things that we've chosen, screen, screen time that we've chosen on purpose. But there's also a lot of screen time when you don't actually want it. So think about when you're in a restaurant and... I want to now connect with you or I want to sit in a coffee shop reading or on a train or wherever or I'm walking down the street and there are a lot of screens that sort of distract you. Have you ever been in this space where like the cricket is on and you're trying to focus on your friends but then your eye keeps going to the screen? See, I'm going to twist that story a little bit. It's I'm with my friends, there's cricket on, but I don't feel like being a part of this conversation. <laughs> so I'm going to watch the TV. Like I'm going to force myself to love cricket that day and just focus. That's what normally happens. Well, maybe your friends would thank you if you <laughs> bought this next, this next discovery, which is what I want to talk about. So two guys in the United States decided that all of this screen time, even the accidental or the not chosen screen time is too much. It gets to our brains. 
it's always in our faces somewhere and wouldn't it be nice if sometimes you could just switch that all off so they found a way they're called um Sorry, Ivan Cash and Scott Blue, and they are the team behind the IRL, so like in real life, okay. the short, short oh, wow. term for that, IRL glasses. They look like sunglasses, and you can still see everything in the world just fine, right? Except one thing, screens. So it's blocking out the screens yes i can show you a picture in just a minute but basically if you imagine standing in a room where there are tv screens it looks like you're looking through like mildly dark sunglasses and everything looks fine but when you look at a screen it's black oh so even if the screen is on it's just yes. going to be black yes and thereby not influencing your eyes and your mind and you'll be much calmer Oh, okay. according according to them so say you're on a busy street or as i said in a sports bar you would see everything and the idea is to give your eyes and so everything except those screens so you're giving yourself um a little bit of a rest from the digital world you can focus on your book or the conversation and not get distracted i mean that sounds really cool but how does it work so it's pretty simple and I was I was surprised by this partly because they have only made the very first version and they're using this Kickstarter to try to get funds to properly research and develop this product. At first they used something called the Casper cloaking technology which is already being used specifically as a film um, on like glass windows of offices and boardrooms. So say I'm inside a boardroom and I'm showing you some top secret thing, then the people outside wouldn't be able to see what's on the screens. So is it that kind of glass that they use in um, identification uh Oh, spaces like, in police stations like one-way glass no. no you can still see through it you just okay. can't see the screens oh okay okay so you can still see like oh Lebo's in that meeting but you oh, can't see what's okay. on that she's looking at at cat pictures instead of the meeting notes <laughs> <laughs> right so they at first they used uh, that kind of film and it worked but after a while they figured out they can actually make this themselves really easily if you take any polarized uh, lens like the ones that most of our sunglasses are made out of flatten it and rotate it by 90 degrees this magic screen blocking power is activated okay before we talk about the superpowers that this thing has <laughs> i hear this a lot right but i don't pay attention to it because it's irrelevant to my life but how do polarized lenses work again it's not irrelevant. You should protect your eyes, Lebo, but I will explain it to you. <laughs> so to put it simply, um, I'm, I'm going to make this as simple as I can. Our eyes tend to like certain angles of light hitting it and others not that much. So um, for instance, if, uh, if, light, uh, if light waves come in at a vertical angle, that's usually quite nice for our eyes. But if they come in at horizontal, um, very straight angles, that'll um, cause a feeling when you're looking at like, say, say a bright car in the sun and like there's glare. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so polarized uh, lenses, you can imagine them almost like stripes or like a fence. Imagine you're looking at like a wooden fence and the light only goes through half of it. Okay. You got that picture? Yeah. That's sort of on a teeny tiny um, level how a polarized lens looks. So it only lets through certain strips of light in a way or certain certain angles. So it lowers the intensity that the light strikes you at? Only some, only some 
angles of light okay making that easier for your eyes so now um if you rotate it it's like there the, some angles get darker ah so when you i see it makes sense it's just yes. that aha moment like if you change the angle right then the angle that it reflects back at will be like it would be dark and not as bright as yes it was initially so figuring out what is the angle of most you know tv screens or whatever that's sort of what they figured out and it okay. turned out to be much easier than they thought it would be just that 90 degree rotation um so after they used that casper form i was talking about they created their own and the design i'm going to show you a picture really quickly over here and um, the design is pretty old school I right mean, it's very flat <laughs> and unflattering to the face so, <laughs> so they had a bunch of different designs here but they chose this very much to make a point not because it was the cutest design because they modeled these glasses after a magical pair of glasses in an old 1988 movie called They Live where if you looked through those glasses you saw um, you didn't see advertising you only saw the truth <laughs> okay yeah. that's an interesting pair of glasses I guess while in the 80s you may have felt bombarded by actual billboards and ads now we're most influenced by screens yes so this really works or what so yes apparently it does work um it's coming out in april next year but the tech is still limited so the current lenses work for lcd and led screens but not oled screens so basically what that means is most tvs and some computers will be blacked out but not most smartphones or digital billboards which i don't know i feel like those are things that i would want to block out like smartphones of other people for instance yeah smartphones i'd buy those i'd buy these glasses for a couple of friends of mine just <laughs> like oh here a pair of glasses then they're like fam i can't see anything with your glasses on that's the point finally you're focusing on me exactly <laughs> i can finally talk to you but i mean looking at this design in the time that we're living in people can make this work honestly yeah. even though it's a very flat look yeah i think so and and i think it makes sense to me to just want that that opportunity to have that sort of break for your eyes and mm. your brain but my one of my main things is why did they have to maybe they had to but the fact that it's so dark i wish it was see-through and and not not basically sunglasses because surely oh, a lot of screens yes. are inside so if i would like these glasses when say i'm sitting somewhere where there is a screen but i want to read but now that it's dark exactly it's just going to dim everything yeah so that's one of my concerns but hey if you think this is great you are the kind of person that's always bothered by screens why not throw some cash at them then they can make these even better just throw it at them yeah and then you'll get some also <laughs> on kickstarter that was um some things from our you know just the world of science what's happening in the news after the break we go into more recent interesting news specifically around a grave of dinosaurs found in the eastern cape this is the science inside with elna Hello, welcome to the show. My name is indeed Elna Schutz. And I'm Lebukhang Madisha. Today on the show, we're keeping all things dinosaur, talking about the deceased of our planet before our time. <laughs> you, you say that with such a happy voice, but I'm... <laughs> 
I'm low-key sad that, I, that I've never seen a real, alive dinosaur. I've seen a lot of dinosaur bones as a science journalist, but I'd like a pet, like a pet brontosaurus. See, the thing is, Alna, I'm freaked out by a lot of animals. So if I'm freaked out by the animals that are here now, imagine a dinosaur in front of me. I'd be, I'd faint. I'd die. Like, they wouldn't even have to attack me. I'd just die by looking at them. <laughs> I'm too scared of those things. So uh, today, we won't scare you too much um, because these aren't alive. They are fossils. <laughs> but um, we have a story from our producer, Bridget LePere, about a recent discovery of a grave of dinosaurs in the Eastern Cape. Have a listen. The dinosaur fossil discovery at Gamecha, a village in the Eastern Cape, has been dubbed South Africa's very own Jurassic Park, adding to its paleontological history, bragging rights to be the first African country by far to house the oldest dinosaur bones dating as far back as 200 million years. The discovery has attracted interest from all over the world. Geologists and paleontologists working on the discovery say such well-preserved dinosaur fossils in one place is the first of its kind in the world. Vitz University paleontologist from the Evolutionary Studies Institute unit, Professor Jonah Chuenere, shares his story. There's a local man, Mr. Dumangwe, in Kameha, was tending his flock of sheep and he was walking them by this heavily eroded area which is close to the entrance to town. And he found these strange rocks coming out. And he knew that there were several people in the area interested in, in fossils and in you know, ancient things in the earth. And so he reported them to his neighbor, who's a guy named Skinyani Khalani. And um, Skinyani is a really interesting person. He's, so he's a Jehovah's Witness, preaches in Dina, like right over the hill from, from this village. But he's also quite a, a, a history buff. Um, and he knows a lot about natural history as well. So he identifies animals. He knows a lot about the Boer Wars and, and previous, you know, comings and goings of people. He initially spotted these fossils. So then he just brought to me little pieces of them. Then I even uh, confirmed to him that looks like uh, these are fossils of the dinosaurs, the big creature. Actually, you would just see by the looks of it, though they tend to be fossilized, but uh, there are some traces of a bone. And I uh, walk with this guy, then uh, I encourage him that uh, we just go along and uh, we start the place. Then we put it more. Though to an ordinary person like myself, they look like a mere stone. A rock, but you would see the knees and the, the vertebrae bones, and those were huge things. Halani says prior to actually getting to the right people, he had contacted many universities in order to share his historic findings. But upon sending the required artifacts to the Witz University, he was then contacted by Jonah and his team. We photographed them and then we sent them to, to Vets with other bullets from the 1898 Omnibur War here in this area. And uh, a stump of a tree, they, they named it an old carol tree stump, which is also fossilized here in the house here. From there, Mr. Joanna, the professor, confirmed that those were dinosaur fossils in there. And they promised to come here on the 16th of November last year. That they really did came. Then they reminded these bones here in the house, and then I took them to the side. They were so impressed, especially when seeing these sites. They even said these, these sites, seemingly, they are great sites of the dinosaurs. Being impressed, they promised that they would be coming back again. They are going to 
asked for grants and funding. It was about six months or seven months or so since. But in July, they again corresponded with us uh, through Mr. May. Mr. May has been very instrumental because he has, he was so helpful to us because one of his daughter is, was a student in those years. Then we sent some samples to his daughter. That was before the second trip of Professor John and his students. So how was Halani able to distinguish these dinosaur fossils to elephant bones or some other creature which may have died there in the most recent centuries? In the following, he relates a folk tale which is popular among African people, a tale that rationalizes how beasts such as dinosaurs and men once coexisted and how they might have been wiped out. People of long ago, especially in our native, the people would say these were Amagongong. Those were huge creatures of long ago. The Basutus would say, that's a bad. Which means these were huge creatures uh, which ate and wiped all the humankind, and people were starting afresh in their population. So those people were not educated, but they knew that once there were so huge creatures around which were roaming this area. So, I mean, it does not need uh, one to have an academic knowledge to identify these. From this expedition, what can humans learn from the ancient bones of a creature that seems so distant to man? So Sarah Vertz, who's a professor in archaeology, came to me and she said, these are a bit old for me to study. And I looked at them and I said, well, those are, these are very nice dinosaur bones. And they were just a couple of samples. Often we get reports from people, from local farmers or people who live in the area, and we can't follow up on all of them. But these people spend more time in the land than we do. I get to go away two or three weeks a year. And these guys are there herding sheep every day. So we had time at the end of a field trip in 2017, and we were driving past Stark Sprite, which isn't that far from this village. And I said, look to my crew, I think we should just go up there and we should take a look and see what they found. And we were introduced to the local guys, and you know, right away it's like, oh my goodness. My hopes were a bit low, to be honest. And uh, Mr. Khalani, together with a local teacher named Temba Jika Jika, took us out to the site, and just within minutes, like, the whole way we thought about this had been transformed. So we're looking at the base of a, a low mountain, big erosional surface coming off into a plain going down to, to the river, which ultimately feeds the Senku in that area and, and goes on to make the border with Lesotho. And we're in this outwash plain, and the erosion had cut deep into the bedrock, so to speak. And everywhere erosion had cut in, you'd look along the banks, and there were just dinosaur bones, like literally falling out the sides of them. And this area is maybe a dozen hectares or something like that in size where we were initially taken and in almost every single erosional gully has bones like the ones that we're sitting here with today coming out and then Mr. Halani said well I've also identified 50 other locations in the area where I found dinosaur bones or where people have reported it to me and then I knew this is a community that's got above the sort of normal level of investment in this these are people who I think are pretty reliable about reporting this stuff. I mean, we were just so impressed. I immediately called my international collaborators um, and local collaborators here in South Africa, too, and I said, I think we've got a big story. We need to go back and, and evaluate this stuff. And so this, this trip that we just came back from, from September 10th to 21st, was our first, essentially our first foray into exploring the quality of this find. 
According to Jonah, Kameha predates what is referred to as the Max Extinction Event. And what this means for South Africa is that Kameha has become the key that unlocks historic events that were once buried for centuries, which places South Africa on the international map. This last field trip, which went from September 10th to 21st, 2018, and we're just back from it now, was our first expedition or foray into trying to figure out what these dinosaurs were actually doing there, how old they were how they came to be there and that sort of thing. And so we spent about two weeks excavating, looking at the rocks, collecting geological, sedimentological, and biological information. And we took some specimens back to the lab for analysis. We've left some specimens there that we'll come back and take later. And what we know now, or at least what we think we know, is that this more than 200 million years ago, Omeha wasn't like it is today. It was a flat, flat plain, and it had big streams cutting through it. And as those streams wandered through the landscape, occasionally animals died and fell into them. And when the streams moved those carcasses down the stream, they deposited them on the banks. And this area that we were shown by Mr. Halane and, and others in 2017 is a place where the river was frequently dumping dead animals onto its banks and then covering them in mud again cover them in enough mud and wait enough million years and they become fossils. And what we're doing now is the erosion system and now the biological agents of erosion, which are paleontologists, are cutting down through that ancient soil and mud and exposing the dinosaurs and, and other animals that had died there. We know that this is an ancient ecosystem and what we know is that it was home to a number of large dinosaurs, stuff that weighed as much as a rhino, maybe more, one ton and above. But there's also other things in it too, and some of them we can't identify. And this is really important. So there's fossil discovery in South Africa, it goes back to the mid 1800s. So we've been doing this for a long time. And the early history of fossil exploration was a bit of a gentleman's hobby. And I think as a science, it's really only picked up since the mid 1940s or so, just after World War II there was a much greater interest in paleontology and the origins of major vertebrate groups and things like that. And South Africa was certainly party to that. We, we played a huge role, as many people will know, in the origin of humans, understanding that origin, the origin of, of understanding mammals. But the dinosaur work hasn't been as extensive. But what we have here is a great fossil record that spans an extinction event, one of Earth's mass extinctions. It's very important for understanding how the modern biota, the modern fauna of animals came into being. And that extinction event happens about 200 million years ago. And that's really, really important. This is called the end Triassic extinction event. And uh, we talk about big five in South Africa a lot. It's one of the big five extinction events. And the rocks on earth that record that extinction event are very hard to find. In fact, they're very sparsely distributed. And so when we're trying to look at how did life on Earth change from before that extinction to after, there's very few places we can look to actually uncover fossils and, and try to interpret that change. South Africa is one of those places. So what we know is that about 50% of life dies off 200 million years ago, very rapidly. We think it's related to volcanic eruptions that are stemming from the Atlantic ocean opening between South America and what is today Africa. And those sets of eruptions changed the Earth's atmosphere and the ocean's chemistry, and that caused a lot of groups to go extinct. Well, importantly, what happens at this extinction is that before the extinction event in the Triassic, the dominant large land-dwelling vertebrates are actually related to crocs and today's mammals. 
So dinosaurs gave rise to their most recent relatives, crocodilians, of which about 36 species can be named now. The evolution of dinosaurs is also said to have produced the variety, a variety of close to 10,000 bird species, can you believe, which would not have been possible without dinosaurs. According to Jonah, this rewriting of history is a reflection of the transformation of the biodiversity of ecosystems over the years. That story was by our producer, Bridget LaPere, and it's pretty amazing, Nebo. It is. The recent findings that have been going on, especially, and this one in particular, because it's not very often that you find uh, fossils just all together. Right, right. You find bits and pieces of a particular fossil. Maybe you'll find an arm or a leg, maybe even a toe, but it's not like you find a whole grave site, an array of fossils. Exactly. We will get into more around dinosaurs, paleontology, all of that later in the show. But after the break, we take a little bit of just a shot left with our unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Now is the time of the show called Unscience. We get a little bit weird and wonderful look at some research that is unusual or just just there to teach you something new level. Today's Unscience um, was produced by Harmony Molefi from the University of Oxford and music is by Ben Sound and Soundbible.com. Let's get into it. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. Now, bold male birds fall faster and harder for their partners. Okay. This is what scientists get up to in their free time, guys. They find out if bold male birds like birds (laughs) even more. I don't know. It's just weird stuff that we're up to out here. (laughs) Now, do you ever think if animals put as much effort into getting their mates as people do? I think in a sense, because it's a pretty important part of being an animal, you know, one of those basic instincts, like true, be what? safe, have food, mates. <laughs> but I, I didn't think they put in like a lot of effort. You know, with people you think, oh no, they must look like this. I don't want them to be like that or whatever. You have very specific characteristics you look for. Okay, that's true. They, I, I do think that animals are not as like specific as they're not as specific but they actually put an effort okay they really do and a new study has found that bold male birds focus on forming strong relationships with their future breeding partners while the shy male birds seem to not really put as much effort and would rather settle for less oh so the shy male birds are like scaredy cats basically (laughs) i mean they could be i guess you could say they're scaredy cats or they just don't put as much effort, I, I don't know. Or they're lazy. <laughs> they're lazy. They're just lazy birds. That's what's happening. A new study from Oxford University's zoology department has revealed that individual personalities of male birds influence how they can form bonds with their future breeding partners. So basically you're saying that the female birds would want to have a sense of the personality of the male bird beforehand. Pretty much. It's been proven that the bolder productive males can get partners sooner and they seem to put more effort into their relationship before breeding season starts. However, shy males are less devoted to finding partners sooner and forming strong bond pairs. And instead, they spend more time, like, flocking with the other females. 
Okay, with this strange kind of research, I always have to ask, how exactly did they prove this? So the study was demonstrated, has demonstrated rather, that differences in behavior can shape the information, the formation of social relationships in the wild. According to Dr. Josh Frith, finding a mate is of importance to birds just as many of the other species in the animal kingdom. Fair enough. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's understandable. And so with this research, they wanted to ask why individuals of some species differ so much in how much effort they put into forming these relationships. In this research, personalities of, a hun- of hundreds of individual birds were assessed by looking at how they live and interact with others. Radio frequency uh, identification tags were used to track the birds' social networks over a period of time. These tags would uh, particularly report the birds' quacks or sounds as a form of them interacting with others. Okay, tell me more. So, Dr. Frith has added that they they have shown how personality plays an important role in explaining the differences the differences in pair bonding tactics. Okay, this we're making fun of the birds, but it does actually sound very similar to humans. It really does because we put in effort and we analyze like personality before we get with someone or like. Yeah, yeah. That didn't come out as as planned. <laughs> so, what exactly were the findings when it came to the birds? So, they found that productive males uh, take more, t- dedicate more time to choosing their future partners, even long before mating season starts. And the scaredy cats or the lazy people, the lazy birds, are less productive, and they take alternative options of interacting with different females as only their sisters right up until breeding season starts and then they're focused to choose any female they can easily find so they can mate and expand their their germinile okay so basically you're saying the the scaredy cat birds are um, interacting with females but not in a way that they would be choosing a partner and then last minute they're like oh no I need a date to the ball and just <laughs> pick whoever's around and whose feathers like uh, match up so um, are the scientists saying all like it would be better if all birds are, are like bald now and proactive I mean not entirely through linking different though linking differences in male birds behavior to different mating strategies the findings suggest that there are there may be no best personality to have and this has helped to further explain why there are differences in personalities although it could be the case that being bold and product, proactive is better for finding a good partner in some social interactions while being more reserved can be preferable in other interactions. Okay, so the shy birds shouldn't now go and try to try try to learn more from the bald birds or like like copy them. No, no, not actually. Uh, since in other studies the birds were taught how to sing new tunes and basically attract other mates. Uh, this might work in favor by the serenading of females with uh, surprise tunes than that they no- that 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 they are normally used to. 
Okay, so that could kind of like change their behavior if they tried, but it's not really necessary is what the scientists are saying. Yeah, pretty much. So it all sounds like fun, but maybe it's possible to sort of portray both characteristics a little bit? I mean, sure. Get a bald bird that has the perfect balance of the charm, like being bold and proactive and also be laid back, I guess. Okay. I suppose maybe that that's work. maybe that's the ideal. That is so strange, level. I've got to say, this piece of of unscience is um, a bit. Uh, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable when when research um, puts like human characteristics on birds. I don't know. I don't know if it's the same thing exactly. Yeah, no. because they're a, they're a different species. They're a different hum, uh, uh, living species. We're human. We interact differently. They're birds. They interact differently. I mean, there could be similarities, but I wouldn't link them directly to us. Yeah, and still, I mean, hey, maybe you learn something for your love life. If you're shy, <laughs> maybe these birds inspired you. It's been unusual and likely unscience. Catch us after the break. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. Earlier on in the show, we spoke about the new discovery of a dinosaur. Our country has such a rich history of dinosaurs and fossils, and scientists every day are doing the slow, careful work of uncovering and understanding them. But if you think about it, these creatures have been around for so long. They don't just belong to science level. So in a sense, they belong to us as South Africans. That is true, Elna, and that's where the idea of geomythology comes through, where stories and science collide. Stories like that of Hodumodumo and these scary monsters that are portrayed over time. As kids, we told these scary stories, and now science comes together with these stories. Uh, this is Lebohang Mofakane from Soweto telling the story. There's moral but as children, we don't take them to hate because by then they just tell you only to find out like at the same time the parents are letting us know who like the world is not as beautiful as we think. And they are the They might not be big, but so it was said living in the village. So Khodimodimo una zabad. So what Khodimodimo used to do was that una pecha lejo. Ali pecha in the fire so lejo low. Le chese and then una lekuma so that he can change his voice into anyone's voice. So there was Selani in the village. Selani had a mother una libizi alokham. Woods. The mom would go to the woods asamaya alonga so that he can make fire. The mom went away, but the mom ule ajuta Selani for Selani. Kumalo kudimodu me must always lock yourself in the house. Selani once upon a time decided to stay outside. So whenever the mom would call Selani, kudimodu me would always adule mole analyze the voice of mom. So mom would abita Selani amubita Selani wanaka Selani wanaka go from zero kwa uuti. Selani would respond and say kia uswa mme kia uswa mme and then Selani would go to the house. So the mother went at Samaya Ailoha di Dimpun, or Atokona or Aetemolo for supper. And then Kanti, 
went in the house. So it was now lunchtime for the Lani but the mother was not back yet. So now the and then Abe And then when he shouted, Silani Wanaka, Silani Wanaka, that was Khodimodimo's voice. And then Silani took time to come. And then she responded, only to find out Khodimodimo. It's now So the stone is supposed to stay hot for him who So when the mom was on her way back home, Khodumarum started Abisa Tilani Hat and then he went So now the voice is changing to the mom's voice into Khodumarum's voice at the same time. Because now Lejeteleponile. And then that's how the mom saw where the monster was inside. And then she started shouting, And then the villagers came and rescued Silani. And then they killed the Khodimodum. That was the end of the story. Khodimodum means a very big, it's human-like giant. The giant is a Sanko Jack and the Beanstalk. Those are the same giants, but they used to eat people instead of eating other things. They eat cannibals. So they used to eat people in the village, but the difference between the other giants and the Khodimodimos was that they used to analyze people. Now, Lebo, it might be easy to wonder, Alna, what does this have to do with science? But that's exactly where geomythology is important. That's when you look at the stories that are told and how they relate to scientific findings like dinosaur fossils. It can also relate to early findings and understandings of items like bones or fossils and how they were understood by the local people at the time. Dr. Charles Helm from the African Center for Coastal Paleoscience was recently speaking at an event at WITS around this and his particular work on the subject and how we as a country fit in. So what is geomythology? To investigate and document how free scientific cultures interpreted geological and fossil data. Geomythology is very well established in North America, Europe, and all of Asia, not in Africa. Adrian Mayer, 2004, summarized geomythology across the world, nothing about Southern Africa. In 2011, she noted that further studies from Africa are, quote, eagerly awaited. So why is there this shortage from Africa and more specifically from Southern Africa? There are three possibilities. Number one, people here just didn't care. There was no indigenous geomythology. It's possible. Okay. Number two, it, it existed, but it left minimal traces. So it was there, but there's nothing we can find to decipher it. Number three, there's been insufficient interest in Southern Africa in exploring this discipline. Those are the three options, right? Now, he gave us three options. So which one is it? I will tell you that in just a minute. But what Dr. Helms um, is saying is that there are there are so many examples of um, where this is actually very clear um, in South Africa. So I want to tell you some of those examples first, and then we'll get into what his choice is. Have a listen. So we have other examples. Busman Kopi is within Mokala National Park. And this is an engraving where you've got a tridactyl big engraving. Um, and it 
This is now speculation, but that's what it looks like. So could this be a depiction, an engraving of a huge uh, three-footed creature that someone had seen somewhere else and reproduced here? We've got the example of Skarplatz near Claris. It's a beautiful, richly decorated shelter, very famous. But on the, the, the back wall, you've got three clusters of rock art, quite a few meters apart. And each of these clusters, there's a dinosaur footprint in front of it, on, on, the, on the ceiling or on the floor. So could it be coincidence? Yes. But could it be significant? Could be. Okay, so that means there's a good chance that people were aware of and had specific understandings of the dinosaurs and creatures that had lived in the areas that they're in long before scientists from elsewhere came along. Yes, and it's really interesting. Some of the examples he had, specifically from Nesutu, actually had mentions of how the people still spoke about these fossils and sort of linked it to stories of the Hurumurumu that we heard earlier. So there's so much interaction between what scientists or modern scientists or scientists from official you know, universities are finding out and how the stories and the myths of those areas have long actually um, reflected those things. So... As you as you might have guessed, it's definitely not a case of there is nothing, right? Mm. So let's get back to those three choices that he had at the beginning. In wrapping up, if we go back to our three options, was the minimal Southern African, non-Western, indigenous geomythology? No, I think I've shown you that we have enough. It, it existed but left no traces? No, I've just shown you. We've got lots of traces if we keep our eyes open. So obviously, number three, it's simply that we haven't been looking in exploring this discipline. So the answer is A, yes, and B, we're working on it. I'm convinced that as more people become aware of this, they're going to give us more sites and we're going to learn a lot more. Maybe with the mythology, we, we can work on that. How to conclude? Non-Western cultures had natural knowledge of paleontology and geology. They incorporated this into their legends, their art, and their understanding of the world. This was one of our conclusions as a group, which was simply that in countries that are reforging their cultural identity after a colonial past, yesterday's curious collectors may become an inspiration for a new generation of Southern African paleoscientists. So interesting how um, the science and the mythology come together. Geomythology just shows you that not only do dinosaurs have a long story in our country, on our continent, but the people of South Africa are aware and have interacted with these stories for a long time. You're still on the science inside. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. It's been a great show, Lebo. I really enjoyed it. I did too, finding out how rich our country is in dinosaur history. A big thank you goes to all of our guests on the show today, Dr. Charles Helm, Lebohang Mofukane, Jonas Wanier and James Khalani. And of course, to our team today behind the scenes in production is Bridget Leperi, Gloria Mabuza, Harmony Molefe and Gudvano Serrame. The podcast, if you missed it, it's vits.journalism.coza forward slash science and it's also on iTunes. And you can always catch us on our social media on Facebook and Twitter as at VowFM. My name is Alna Schutz. And I'm Lebohang Madisha. You have been listening to The Science Inside. We are produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. We will be with you again next week. 
The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OFM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.